0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. 50 high school senior girls descend on Mobile, Alabama every summer to compete for a massive cash prize. It's one of America's most lucrative scholarship competitions for teen girls. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is the competition. Follow the competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts
1: A, a very, very erudite and brilliant writer on the subject, Gene Lees, uh, who I got to know a little bit, has identified the big band era as the last time that America's best music was also America's most popular music.
0: That's interesting.
2: So literally, just was it was happy music that made you happy. Yeah. Oh, I love it. That's amazing.
1: Everyone's got their thing.
2: The reviews are in. Everyone loves Fanatics. Hi, I'm one of your hosts, David Magadoff, and my other most
0: wonderful host is Claire Kramer. Hello, David. Hello, Claire. And hello to all our lovely listeners. Thank you for tuning in again this beautiful Thursday.
2: And the reviews are in for you guys too. You're some of the best podcast audience members ever.
0: That's right. Good segue, David. Good they, segue. I love I love it. Do they get 5 stars?
2: They do. And so does they, our so does our what guest is the today, rating Mr.
0: of our listeners. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, so does our guest today. Mr. Leonard Maltin is here with all of our review themes and motifs and wordplay. I hope you're enjoying it all because he is uh, one of the uh, preeminent film critics of our time. Yeah, I'm throwing that out there because it's true. Leonard Maltin sort of made film criticism the what it is today. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing.
0: Well, he took it sort of like, of course, everybody knows Siskel and Ebert, you know, but he took it in a different direction because he has a unique perspective on film. And he's I I will say that I feel like I'm a little bit like him in that I can find something to appreciate in any piece of art, you know, even if it's like a crazy movie where most people are saying, I I really didn't like that. I usually come out of it and say, you know, maybe it's not my top 20 or even 100, but I did like this. The music was great or something. And he's the same way as a critic. He actually became known for when he writes a review or in his Leonard Maltin's Guide to Movies books, he lists... Every credit down to, you know, the under fives. So he has appreciation even for the very small components that make up the piece of art, which is the cinematic film we all end up watching.
2: It's 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 a wonderful, wonderful thing what he does because he, he gets into every nook and cranny. And we get into every nook and cranny about his love of vintage jazz. And Claire, and, I know, tried, would you believe I yeah. tried my hand at film criticism when I was in high school? I was a critic- for my local newspaper, the Asbury Park Press. Yeah, Ooh. Bruce Springsteen, Greens from Asbury Park. Uh, for two years. Uh, it is not an easy thing, but I had a great, great time doing it. And if you ever wanted to re- read reviews from an incredibly well-informed 15-year-old, then mm-hmm. I was definitely what your What was guide. your,
0: like, Paramount review? What was the one that you're like, if you want to really know what I was like as a critic, go read my review of
2: I wanna give you an answer, but I would be making it up because I just don't remember. So okay. I'm just well, gonna say- Well obviously had a
0: huge impact in your life.
2: <laughs> I'm just gonna say all of them. They were all really sound, uh, well thought out, uh, used really big vocabulary words and just great, really great. They were. I was really good at that. I was really good at reviewing stuff.
0: It sounds like <laughs> it with those big vocabulary words like good and great. <laughs>
2: speaking of great leonard malton uh today's guest we have mr leonard malton thank you so much for being here with us today my pleasure Uh, and you can listen to leonard's podcast beyond our podcast uh, malton on movies who doesn't want to listen to leonard malton speak about movies but today we're going to have leonard malton speak about vintage jazz correct Yes. I mean, I may go a little uh, outside the lines. I may paint outside the line. But that's what jazz is about. I love it.
1: (laughs) Yes. Right. Right. No (laughs) constrictions, no artificial boundary lines.
0: That's my own definition of jazz. I feel like what you just said, no boundaries, no artificial lines. You know, I mean, is that what you love about the art form is that it is so free flowing?
1: Well, you know, there are so many different subsets of music under the broad umbrella of jazz. I, as a kid, I discovered my parents' collection of old 78 RPM records. I don't know how many people have seen these in their lifetimes, (laughs) but they're 10 inches wide. They've got a hole in the middle (laughs) and they're made in those days of shellac, highly breakable. As a kid, you find this out pretty quickly, highly breakable. (laughs) And I just found fascination in in the the, the very uh, fact that you could put a needle down on a record and it would play. So I was discovering what my parents had in their record stacks. And I I came upon Song of India by Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra, which is a wonderful swing arrangement of an old uh, traditional song from India. And (laughs) how would you guess? I just couldn't stop listening to it. And and part of what I found so appealing about that recording was its use of dynamics. It starts very softly, and then the band comes in on a particular measure, and then gets quiet again. And then they all join in, and it gets a little louder and a little fuller. And then at the end, it goes back to being quiet, and then it rounds out with a, I don't know, four-bar, eight-bar finale with the whole band playing together. Wow. Wow. And uh, you know what? It still gets me.
2: How old were you when that happened?
1: Eight or nine or 10, something like that. And then I remember watching a TV special where they had a reunion of the Benny Goodman Quartet, the original Benny Goodman Quartet. And I really liked what they were playing. Benny Goodman on clarinet, Teddy Wilson on piano, Gene Krupa on drums, and Lionel Hampton on vibraphone. And it sounded very, very exciting and appealing. And my mother said something like, And, you know, they're not playing anything written down. They're just doing it. And I said, huh? (laughs) And that was the the first crack of the door opening to what improvisation was. I later learned that for for the Goodman Quartet, for instance, they had a certain structure to the tunes they played. So it was not completely improvised, but they improvised within the borders of something familiar but they were just great. And then I got really lucky. I got to see so many of these giants in person. My timing was superb. I came along at just the right moment. Uh, I was at Carnegie Hall, further reunion of the Benny Goodman Quartet. And Benny said, you know, in baseball, they've just added the designated hitter status. So we have brought in Slam Stewart as our designated hitter on base. Oh, and, wow. Uh, so, and I saw Duke Ellington and I saw Ella Fitzgerald, and I saw Count Basie multiple times. I saw Buddy Rich as often as I could. How lucky am I?
0: You obviously have a huge love for the arts in general. I mean, your your career is based in you know film and your love of film. Mm-hmm. What is it about jazz that lit you up on the inside from that first time you set the needle on the record?
1: If I could put that into words, I might be... Uh, a better writer on the subject of jazz than I am. <laughs> I have written about it because I end up writing about anything I get really interested in. I just feel the need to express myself, but I can't explain it. It's a, mm. it's a, a definitely a, a visceral feeling. It just gives me uh, enormous, enormous deep down pleasure and satisfaction.
2: Well, it just sounds like it speaks to you. i um, like you said, like on a real guttural soul level. And I love that you fell in love with placing it, you know, the little needle on yeah. the vinyl. That's a beautiful thing. Because I that's how I fell in love with vinyl too. I used to like play with my parents. Everyone played with their parents' vinyl. You lift up the little needle, you put it down, and you see the grooves. It, you know, it kind of gyrates a little bit on the on the turntable. That's that's so fun. Do you and your mom liked jazz though it sounds like because she was kind of like my mom we can never explain why she liked any of the music did your parents were they bring you to all these concerts or were you tugging at their no sleeves? no
1: i did that on my own i was in my teens and we lived in a new jersey suburb that was very close to manhattan
2: I grew up in Jersey myself. What wonderful New Jersey suburb did you spend your youth in?
1: What exit? Yeah,
2: one twenty-three for me
1: <laughs> off the Garden State Parkway. Yeah, I was in Teaneck. Oh, okay, great. Five miles from the George Washington Bridge. Yeah,
2: I'm a little more uh, central than you in, in Marlboro and Monmouth yeah. County.
1: But yeah, Teaneck. Yeah, yeah, oh well, Monmouth County's real Jersey. Yeah, yeah. You know, I call Teaneck Jersey life. You got to really enjoy New York. I did. I got the best of New York, the best of both worlds, growing up in a, what might be described as an idyllic post-World War II, baby boom town, with all the benefits that went with that. In fact, not too far afield of what we're discussing, quite a number of famous jazz musicians lived in Teaneck and Englewood. Really? (laughs) I guess one of them bought a house there and told someone else, who told someone else. And Teaneck was one of the nicer towns that was open to to, uh, Black homeowners. Later, I found out there's an asterisk to that story which is that it was redlined. They were shown houses in a specific part of town. They kind of clustered them in one area of town, except for the New York Yankee star Elston Howard. He lived around the corner. Fame trumps everything.
2: A Yankees player is, is everything in New Jersey. Yeah. So you would just go into the city yourself at like what age? Like 13, 14, 15, 16? Just all through my teens. Yeah.
1: All through my teens and into my 20s.
2: Did you bring friends with you or were you literally going to these places all by yourself?
1: Usually with a friend. Okay. The year after I graduated from NYU with my journalism degree, which no one has ever asked to look at. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, I have an NYU degree as well that no one ever looks at. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, you go to your dentist's office and you see his diploma on the wall. No one ever asked me as a freelance writer <laughs> to show them evidence of anything. But it was 1973. And I said to a friend of mine who was an aspiring rock critic, and we worked together on the NYU Daily Newspaper. And I said, I want to write about jazz. How do I sort of announce to the world that I want to write about jazz and why should they care? And he said, Well, you might try The Village Voice. Mm. I understand they take freelance pieces. So I wrote a piece on spec, as they say. That is to say, without a, an assignment, and sent this article into the editor of what they then call Riffs. That was the section of uh, reviews on uh, music reviews. And I received back some days later in the mail an envelope with a note, a, a brief note on a memo-sized pad, saying, uh, "Like the piece? Here's payment. If you want to try pitching something else, I- I'm always open." And it was a check for seventy dollars.
2: Wow! That's a lot back then. <laughs>
1: That was the happiest check I ever I ever made. No, nothing I've been paid since. <laughs> and I've been paid less and I've been paid a lot more. Nothing's ever made me so happy. That was one of the happiest moments of my entire life. So, of course, I called her immediately and pitched another story. First, she said, well, you know, we have an awful lot of people submitting to the column every week, so I can't take everything. But, you know, if there's anything really special, I said, well, Uh, Duke Pearson is leading a big band at the Half Note starting tomorrow night. She said, oh, well, that sounds good. So I immediately sold the second piece. Mm -hmm. And what we finally worked out was that I would submit every other week. And I did that for four years.
0: That's amazing. It's interesting because when we first started talking, we said, we're really going to focus on vintage jazz. What do you think it was at that point in history, at that time in the culture of African-Americans that created this sort of movement, you know, that that initiated the whole jazz movement. And can that ever be recaptured?
1: One of my favorite people in the world is Vince Giordano, who has a wonderful, wonderful band for about 20 years now called the Nighthawks. And they play every Monday and Tuesday night in Manhattan, currently at a, a restaurant called the Iguana in the West 50s. And they play Real vintage jazz, they play pre-swing jazz, mostly from the 1920s and early 30s. And they play with great feeling and they capture the intonation of the instruments they're playing. There's a different sound. If you asked somebody to run a scale today in B flat on a tenor saxophone, it'd sound a certain way. If you ask one of Vince's guys to do that, it won't sound quite the same. The difference may be subtle, but it's definitely there. And so they are playing authentic period music in an authentic fashion.
2: Could you put it into a simple sentence of, to describe for our listeners, and maybe Claire and I, vintage jazz is old.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when you talk about playing it authentically, is it the freedom that current artists lack with the instruments? Are they not as versed? Are there shortcuts being taken in musical education and in jazz history? What creates that real authenticity of you know the vintage music?
1: I think it's, a, it's not only a skill that has to be acquired, mm. but it's a feeling. Sometimes I'll hear faux vintage jazz, let's call it, and they're trying to play it to sound corny with a wah-wah sound for the trumpets and things that they think were earmarks of that kind of music that aren't and weren't. And that just gives me a, a headache and a big dose of righteous indignation.
2: Mm-hmm. So what are maybe one or two things that you look for, like you specifically love about vintage jazz when you're listening to it, like things that you look forward to? It makes me happy. No, but that makes me happy, but specifically... No, no, no. Like, it, it makes me, ha- I mean, but literally... Oh, wow.
1: Jazz in those days was a form of entertainment. <laughs> it wasn't just for listening. A lot of that music was intended specifically for dancing in ballrooms and nightclubs and at dances, school dances, you know, community dances. The kind of musicians who were then featured on solos and given spotlights within a bigger band often had great following and developed a fan base the way you know a, a rock star would today or a rapper would today because they were so outstanding on their instrument and played with such heart and such feeling or such extraordinary skill this became really significant during the big band era a, a very very erudite and brilliant writer on the subject gene lees uh, who i got to know a little bit identified the big band era as the last time that America's best music was also America's most popular music.
2: That's interesting. So literally just was it was happy music that made you happy. Yeah, oh, I love it. That's amazing.
1: And that was its intention. <laughs> and the musicians knew that they were there not just to play, but to provide entertainment. Now, some people are very condescending about that. Some musicians, you know, when Miles Davis famously, this is now decades and decades ago, turned his back on an audience while playing or while listening to one of his uh, cohorts play uh, during a number. That was considered the rudest thing he could do and the most unprofessional thing he could possibly do as a member of show business. He had trouble thinking of himself as a member of show business. He was an artist, and that's what mattered to him.
2: Well, that's how Claire feels, so I I always have to take her down a peg, but... (laughs) You are both in show business and an artist, Claire, and I respect you.
0: <laughs> Thank you, David. Always here to keep it real. Let's go back, Leonard, to you, know, you as a young boy and your experience finding your parents' records. And now, uh, do you still have a huge vintage jazz record collection? Is that something that you enjoy, is collecting the actual albums?
1: I sure do. Well, you said you're going to have props. It's prop time. These are just a few of these. Unfortunately, I didn't uh, spend enough time preparing for these because these are all more modern jazz. Quote, unquote, modern.
0: Quote, unquote, yes.
1: (laughs) They're still 60 years old, (laughs) but they're modern. Here's one of the greatest jazz trumpeters of the the bop era and beyond, Lee Morgan. This album is called The Cooker. And he plays with Pepper Adams on baritone sax, Bobby Timmons on piano. Paul Chambers on bass and Philly Joe Jones on drums. People may know some of those names from their association with John Coltrane, but uh, this is just a magnificent album. Here's guys from the swing era who made a smooth transition to modern jazz in the 50s when uh, it was either bebop or what they called moldy figs. These guys were never moldy figs. Uh, Snooky Young, Marshall Royal, Ray Brown, Louis Belson. Freddie Green, and Ross Tompkins. These guys just had swing in their veins. And I I saw almost all of them in person at various times. Uh, And again, so lucky. So very, very lucky. Leonard,
2: what is a moldy fig other than a a moldy fig?
1: (laughs) When bebop came along in the 40s and was popularized largely by Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker, it was very complex, difficult music to play, and they took pride in that. They were unabashedly elitist, and they played at ridiculously rapid tempos, so the people who tried to sit in with them couldn't, except for those lucky few who, who could. So members of some of the uh, uh, older, more established bands uh, who either disdained this new music or didn't understand it, couldn't comprehend it were immediately called moldy figs.
2: (laughs) Do you know where that term came from? It's so unique and hilarious.
1: I do not. I I do not. I should, but I don't. Here's one of the greatest guitarists who ever lived, Joe Pass, who worked a lot with Ella Fitzgerald and Oscar Peterson and was a brilliant guitarist. And I saw him on the Steve Allen Show, which used to be a showcase for all kinds of great people. And he was promoting this album of uh, movie themes. And uh, playing a 12-string guitar.
2: With a giant exclamation point on it.
1: That's right. A great sound. So I went out right away and bought that album. And here is my favorite male singer, Mel Torme. Oh, yeah. And my favorite album, Mel Torme Songs of New York, which was originally tied into a movie called Sunday in New York, which even appears on camera briefly. These are all New York songs. New York, New York, the sidewalks of New York, 42nd Street. Lullaby of Birdland, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the arrangers, several contributed to this exquisite album. One of the arrangers was Johnny
0: Williams. Wow. So how many albums are in your collection? Hundreds. Hundreds? Thousands? Yeah.
1: I don't think it's thousands, but it's certainly hundreds. And by the way, I still have even audio cassettes of some of this stuff.
2: Oh,
0: you I got love it. it. I
2: love a good audio I
0: cassette. I
1: have outmoded in every medium.
0: How do you hunt for a particular album if you if you know it's out there and you don't have it?
1: I don't anymore. I confess that I've had to uh, restrain myself. Let's put it that way.
0: (laughs) Is it self restraint or restraint suggestion from a spouse or a? Uh, No, 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 (laughs) no. My
1: my wife Alice is very encouraging, and she is a collector too. So we live in a. A pair of glass houses, and we can't throw bricks at each other.
2: <laughs> Out of curiosity, what's her collection? We'll have her on the show one day. Royal British Commemorative Pieces. Amazing. Claire?
0: Love it.
1: Dating back before <laughs> Queen Victoria.
0: Oh, wow. Amazing. Okay, so so you've had to stop hunting for your albums. Yep. But is there one musician or one group, quartet, trio that you never saw in person that, that you just would have given any? If you could time travel back... Who would you choose to go see, I guess?
1: The great pianist, Art Tatum. The most brilliant pianist, I think, of the 20th century. You get very little argument on that from anybody. His technique was incomparable, but it was matched by his artistry and his innate sense of good taste. He was just, he was a genius.
0: So he would be the one. He'd be
1: the one. I never tire of listening to him.
0: Leonard,
2: throughout the given day... Do you listen to jazz once a day on your radio stations in your MP3s? Will you throw a vinyl on? Like, what is a what's a given day or a week for you and jazz?
1: Well, uh, we're lucky to have a public radio station here in LA. It's actually located in Long Beach. It's a, affiliated with Cal State Long Beach.
2: Is this K Jazz the eighty-eight point one? Yes, I, I'm a fan of the eighty-eight point one. Oh yeah.
1: And I get frustrated with K-Jazz sometimes, <laughs> but they also do. I mean, they play Art Tatum,
2: so they can't be all bad.
0: <laughs> so, so hours a day, 10 hours a day listening to, to jazz.
2: Would you say you listen to jazz every day? Pretty much.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Not as much as I would like to, in part because uh, Alice doesn't care for it that much. Oh. And so she likes some, but not all in part because I found I can't work to it.
0: Interesting. Oh,
1: I can't have it on in the background. My uh, brain starts saying, you know, it starts drifting over to the music. and I'm listening more to the music than concentrating on the writing I'm supposed to be doing. It's not white noise to me. It it engages me too fully.
0: This is interesting because I think you're the type of person, and I tend to do this too, is I, I get into a subject or excited about a subject, and then I want to start creating within that subject. You know, I want to, learn to play the trombone. And then I want to, you know, make a podcast about jazz or that. Do you get so worked up and so excited that you want to actually immerse yourself into it even more than, than you're able?
1: Well, that's why I started writing for the village voice. And I also around the same time got published in downbeat magazine, the, the oldest, I guess, of the, the ongoing jazz publications wrote for them for a number of years and then in in about 15 years ago the LA jazz society asked if i wanted to host their annual awards dinner and i did that for a number of years and got to meet a lot more jazz people who i admired and uh, that was really cool literally like being kid in a candy store
2: here's my question about how it changed because you were in the 70s going to jazz getting paid for it writing about it At NYU, I'm picturing like one of the most happy people in my life is just (laughs) you listening to jazz, (laughs) writing about it. So how did that sort of dissipate? And then obviously you went into becoming one of the most prominent film critics we've ever had. So how did that switch happen?
1: It was a lark. It was never a career ambition. For me, it was just a lark. I was astonished and thrilled that I could actually get published on this subject and to get paid to boot.
2: You're saying the jazz has been the lark. Yeah. You just want to keep it as a hobby more than anything. And yeah. Then, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Great.
0: So let me ask you this. We we talked a little bit about a while ago with Miles Davis and the musician versus the showman, and sort of, you know, that duality. Do you feel that a true jazz genius has to have both or can they just be purely like a musical savant?
1: Well, if you have that degree of talent, you can do anything you damn well please, I guess.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> you
1: know, Art Tatum was legally blind, so he wasn't completely blind. So I don't imagine having never gotten to see him in person. There are a few film clips of him here and there, but I don't imagine he had tremendous stage presence. I, that's the impression right. I get. Yeah. Is, is that he just played. When you went to see him, you didn't go to see, you know, a guy put on a show. You went to hear him play. When I was a little kid, I got to see Louis Armstrong at the Canadian National Exposition with my parents. And I didn't get him then. I was much too young. I was eight years old, seven, eight years old. And now I marvel that I can hear two notes, three notes, and I know it's him.
0: Oh, wow. Hmm.
1: How is that possible? How is it possible to listen to Stan Getz and know that it's Stan Getz playing that sax? It's amazing how really gifted musicians in this field develop their own distinctive and unmistakable sound.
0: Do you play any instruments?
1: I play piano.
0: Okay.
2: Ooh, do you ever try your hand at it? The last
1: teacher I had, It was the only one I ever liked. And he was a professional studio musician in New York. And so he taught me chords, fundamental chords that would serve me to play anything in the pop music vein. Mm -hmm. And then he went on the road with a nightclub app and I didn't feel like breaking in another teacher. So my skill level remains where it was when I was 13 years old, which is not inept, but it's not very advanced either. So, over the years at Entertainment Tonight, I used to seize every opportunity to do a story about jazz people, which I could sneak onto our weekend show. We had an hour long weekend show, which didn't have to be as topical as the daily program. And my ulterior motive in doing all of these pieces was to get to play with the guests. First, I played for Jack Sheldon, the great trumpeter and band leader who was M- uh, Merv Griffin's sidekick for many, many years. He's the one who played The Shadow of Your Smile on the soundtrack of the movie The Sandpiper. He had incredible credits. And he asked me to play something. So I played uh, Pennies from Heaven in the key of C, which is the only key I seem to be able to play in. <laughs> and he paid me a really high compliment. He said, you have good time. I took that as a, you know. Being knighted, you know. <laughs> put that on your gravestone. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And he said, "You got to sit in with the band. We've got an arrangement in C. and see." <laughs> and a year and a half later, we went to a place called the Moonlight Tango Cafe, no longer there in Sherman Oaks. And I walk in, and I'm not there one minute when he comes over. A big crowd said, "You're going to sit in tonight?" <laughs> well, I I wasn't going to not do it. Right. But I had my first out of body experience. Truly, it was unreal. Wow. It was unreal. There was a break for a piano solo, and he nodded at me and started playing. And I soon was playing octaves because I had to be heard over the rhythm section. Oh, man. And then he had me sit in again one other time at the Catalina Bar and Grill, and that night was being videoed by his assistant. So I have evidence.
2: wow
0: (laughs) okay describe the out-of-body experience while you were playing like this was you were literally just someone else was controlling your hands no i I was in
1: control of that it's just that i couldn't see myself actually playing with a band with a 16-piece band it was just heaven
2: it was heaven yeah
1: it was a unique experience i played with the great benny carter I played with Marion McPartland when she was hosting her NPR radio show, Piano Jazz. I had wonderful experiences.
2: What is the Gateway album for someone listening and is like, I don't know jazz. I, don't know, I didn't know there was vintage jazz, let alone modern jazz. What would be the vintage jazz Gateway album for someone?
1: Oh, a best of, uh, best of the Benny Goodman trio and quartet would be, a, I think, an easy way yeah. in. And and they were so hugely popular. I mean, they they had a broad, broad appeal. Over the years, I met several of these folks. And I became a master of the one-question interview (laughs) because the occasion wasn't an interview sit-down. It was just I bumped into them or I followed them backstage. And I met Benny Goodman, one of my idols, at the Santa Fe Film Festival. And I said, whose idea was it for you to sing Paducah? In the movie, The More, The Merrier, he looked at me and he said, well, it wasn't mine. (laughs) (laughs) One question interview. I marched backstage at a high school near me where they had booked Stan Kenton and his orchestra. I said, Mr. Kenton, which of the movie shorts that you made did you think was the best? He said, I thought they were all pretty bad. One question. I got answers.
0: So if you had to just sum it up on a scale of one to 100, in this big wide universe, how big of a fanatic are you about jazz? 101. I love it. 101. I am so with you. And you know what? You've really inspired me, Leonard, because I'm going to go out and I'm going to revisit some of these artists that I've always sort of known about. And of course, you know, for me, my experience with jazz has been like, go out to a club in Paris and listen to jazz or go, you know, it's just something sort of romantic and associated with travel. But now I feel like I really want to get into like the history and the art form. So thank you for that. Listen
1: to the quintet of the Hot Jazz Club of Paris with Stefan Grappelli and Django Reinhardt.
0: Ooh. Uh,
1: Django Reinhardt was the famous gypsy guitar player that generations have idolized. Willie Nelson says that Django Reinhardt remains his inspiration to this day. And he plays an old beat-up guitar that resembles the one that Django played. That's very listenable, wonderful music very inventive.
0: I cannot thank you enough for coming on Fanatics, talking about your love of vintage jazz. David and I, I think are both, I, I don't know, I'm ready to go download albums. I'm going to do it and I'm going to get back to you on it. All you know? right.
2: I still have to go to the baked potato, the famed LA uh, club. It's still open, right? I think it is. Once we're allowed to get out there, I'm back.
0: Your are baking potatoes.
2: I'm baking you're potatoes. you moldy fig. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm gonna bake some potatoes and not be a moldy and not fig. Not be a
0: moldy fig. Anyway, Leonard Moulton, you're amazing. Thank you for joining us on Fanatics. Woohoo! Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Isn't he a great guy, David? I mean mm-hmm. to be in this business so long to to be to be such a positive person to not be jaded by the industry you know I mean we all as artists and as you know I consider every aspect a you know movie critic and artist as well you know and the the lighting designer is an artist and whatnot but everyone has a tendency to become jaded and he's just remained so positive and that shows through in his love of the vintage jazz i just him telling the stories about getting to play on stage you know those couple times they were so magical
2: i know it's just i wanted i i i want to know an instrument and join him on that stage I want to be able to I want I wish I could one day know an instrument enough to just be like, oh, you want me to come up here? Yeah, I can come up and play versus that'll never happen. All I can do is be the guy on the corner clapping. (laughs)
0: You're the ukulele guy. I mean, can't oh. you, but, you know, a strings can... You, ukulele translates. You just need to learn a few more strings. That's you know? true.
2: There's only yeah. four. There's only four. It right? only gets to go, go so far.
0: You should have started with the violin. But, you know, if you were in a jazz band, let's say, what, what instrument do you think you would play? I play
2: the cello. Is that no? Uh I said no, the bass. That's how bad I am at the bass. Because those guys, (laughs) they're standing up there and they look cool. And also reminds me of the time, uh, because if you're big people who watch The Office, where Michael Scott couldn't afford a whole jazz trio, but he could only afford the bass player. And the bass, there's only a guy playing bass. In the corner of the conference room during the holiday party, and I would. You can want- kind of
0: make that work, though. I mean, it's kind of like <laughs> if you can't afford anyone, you just have a drummer, just like keeping the beat of the party going. You know, it's like <laughs> the same thing with the. <laughs> dun, dun, dun,
2: dun, dun, dun. Magical. Same thing? And hopefully, yes. Leonard was much better than that.
0: I mean, my interpretation of the bass doesn't rock out. <laughs>
2: all right, all right, I'm rocking out.
0: I think I would play the. I would. I've always wanted to play the saxophone. Ooh. In fact, in high school, my parents, being the lovely parents that they were, when I expressed an interest in playing the saxophone, they're like, "Okay, well, let's get you some saxophone lessons." And that lasted like two months, and the guy was basically to my parents was like, "No."
2: <laughs> Did he really? <laughs> Did he really have a a, an, a side combo with them? It was yeah, like, it's just like it's not uh, working out.
0: Not not the saxophone for her, something else. Stick with ballets, you know. (laughs) So anyway. I am definitely going to leave this episode and go listen to some vintage jazz. Yes. How about yeah, you, David? Uh,
2: I will as well. It, it it definitely reminded me how much jazz is so wonderful. And actually, we do listen to the jazz in the Magadoff household uh, pretty darn often. It's, uh, it tends to be our dinner music, uh, but sometimes one can listen to it just for the love of it. And thank you for listening to our podcast just for the love of it as well. We'll see you guys next week. Bye bye. You're probably thinking to yourself, what is a mini Rex rabbit? Well, boy, do I have a good answer for you that you're going to have to listen to next Thursday with our wonderful guest, Nicole Tompkins. Yes, Jill Valentine from Resident Evil herself and the films Antrim, the Amityville Terror and currently on the Wild West Chronicles on Inspo TV. Oh, my gosh. Mini Rex rabbits. It'll be your new favorite thing. See you next Thursday.
0: Thank you for listening to Fanatics, a Roddenberry podcast. For more episodes and info, head over to wearefanatics.com or tweet your Fanatics thoughts and stories at wearefanatics.
2: Yes, that's we are F-A-N-A-D-D-I-C-T-S. Our show is hosted by Claire Kramer and me,
0: David Magadoff.
2: Produced by me, Claire
0: Kramer, and Colin Baker. Executive producers Trevor Roth and Rod Roddenberry.
2: Our sound engineer and editor is Elizabeth Joy
0: Wyndham, And you can thank Stephen Mudd for our theme song. Catch us next Thursday for another Fanatics episode. Wait, that's a lot. (laughs) I'm not sure this would be considered jazz.